Welcome to episode 324 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. When COVID-19 brought all in-person events to a screeching halt, events became synonymous with virtual events. By now, you likely have Zoom basics down. Problem is that basic skills are not enough to stand out as a top-notch virtual presenter. You don't need a high-tech recording studio or a green screen with a hair light, that's a real thing, and fancy software to level up your Zoom game. Focus on improving your technique rather than your technology. My third book, Break Out of Boredom, Low-Tech Solutions for Highly Engaging Zoom Events, will help you design transformative, inclusive, and engaging online experiences. Get the book and all the bonus content at breakoutofboredom.com. That's breakoutofboredom.com. Share something you learned from the book in an Amazon review and join over 100 readers who also took the time to write one. Please and thank you. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest is an expert in developing relationships for strategic success. He is the world's leading authority in maximizing customer loyalty through radical generosity. While becoming the number one performer out of one and a half million sales reps for one of the world's most recognizable brands, he developed a system of using generosity to gain access to elite clients and generate thousands of referrals. He and his firm, Giftology, now help automate this process for individuals and organizations like UBS, Carol Williams, the Chicago Cubs, and Caesars Palace. He's the author of Giftology, the art and science of using gifts to cut through the noise, increase referrals, and strengthen retention. Has been featured in Fox News, Forbes, Fast Company, Inc., and New York Times. Please join me in welcoming John Rulin. John. Thanks for having me, Robbie. This is going to be fun. This is going to be totally fun. Thanks for joining us from your place in Illinois. Thrilled to have you. And as you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how did you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Yeah, well, I think I think everybody should be at least leading themselves, right? Self-leadership. And oftentimes, we, you know, if you're married or have a significant other or volunteer at your church, your school, like there's a lot of opportunities. Sometimes people think of only like Fortune 500 CEOs as leaders, and that's not true. Like we all have to leave. I, one of my mentors talked about like um, leadership being committed to um, an objective that would not have happened had somebody not stepped in and that that objective is beneficial to all parties. And that's what leadership is, is that basically you are creating a, the future. And part of that is most people can't create a future without others that are willing to follow or be a part of that creation process. So to me, you know, we're all creating, whether we realize it with our, our words, our actions, how we show up, whether that's personally or professionally. So to me, leadership, uh, and one of my first books I ever read was the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, a John Maxwell book. Um, and, uh, and John's now become a client and, and somebody that I, I really respect. But um, I think leadership is crucial to everything. Um, I, I'm going to want to circle back to how you went from reading this book <laughs> to suddenly having him as a colleague and a friend. But tell me, when, you know, when you're thinking about leadership, I love this, this, um, this idea from your mentor that it's a, it's a path that benefits others that wouldn't have been taken if you hadn't sort of stepped in and taken some initiative. That, that is a really cool definition because it shows um, it's active, it's responsive, and if not for you, who would be doing it? Like, it, that's why it's you, uh, not by title, but by position or capacity or whatever it might be. Yeah. When did you first start realizing you had some of these skill sets? Well, I think um, I was fortunate. Uh, I grew up, you know, kind of like the, you know, not say typical story, but a lot of people, either US or globally, you know, grow up without a lot of money or access or whatever. And um, I wanted to have not be a, the poor farm kid milking goats on the farm. And so I went to go be a doctor 
and my life really kind of changed because I went to pay for med school. I was desperate. I could go work a gap at the time for five bucks an hour. This is 22 years ago. Uh, or I could wait tables. And I ended up going and interning with Cutco, the knife company. And I didn't think of myself as a salesperson. I didn't think of myself as a leader. I was just kind of out of desperation. But because of the training of that company, they're one, I think they're an amazing knife company, but they're really a self-development and, and probably the in my opinion, the top personal development company in the world for college kids, for their intern program. And, uh, and I started to realize, like, we all are called to be leaders. And I got asked to speak at the local sales meeting, then the regional meeting, and then the national meeting. And I started to realize I could have, you know, a platform and influence as a 20-year-old that a lot of people wouldn't realize or to have at, at 60 years old. Like, I was speaking in front of thousands of people. And so it was there that I realized, like, it didn't matter that I was selling knives, like everything, like the thing doesn't matter. It's like the relationships that you form with your clients and your partners and your employees and whatever else. So I think early on, I, I got exposed to the ability to influence large groups of people. And, you know, even from a faith perspective, I was able to, you know, not just talk about things, but go do it at scale. And so that was, you know, my experience with Cutco is one of those early experiences that really opened my eyes and I ended up putting med school on hold and becoming, you know, a business owner, entrepreneur early on because of that experience. Yeah. It really transformed the fork in the road for you, uh, a road that you didn't even know existed suddenly opened up to you. You, yeah. you didn't think of yourself as a person who did sales. You didn't know anything about like connecting, engaging persuasion. Like, you know, you, you were sort of following a fairly traditional, or you were trying to follow a fairly traditional career path. Yeah. You know, going to med school is something I think is a, an aspiration for a lot of people that at least they know is an aspiration that others have thought about. And here you are now 20 years old standing in front of you know rooms full of people. So people must have seen certain potential in you. And I'm curious where that even originates before this moment at Cutco, because I your story is pretty profound in that moment. But who were you before that? Like on the playground in grade school, you know, did you run for office? Did your teachers see your potential or were you getting in trouble for making, making everyone else laugh? Like what, what kind of kid were you? What did it look like? So, I mean, I was, I would say a typical farm kid. I mean, I had work ethic and grit because, you know, animals die and things don't, you know, like you just have to follow through on things based upon necessity, not because you want to, but because you have to. I think part of that translated over, I wasn't the best athlete, but I was the kid who, when I got cut from the basketball team, I went and begged my way onto the practice squad. So kind of Rudy style, like I'm in the practice squad of basketball. And then the following year, I made the team on my own. But I think, you know, other people were making fun of like, you know, John going and just practicing, but then, you know, it became a rallying point. So I think, uh, I think I was like the overachiever kid. Like I got straight A's, not because I was the smartest, but because I figured out the angles of like how to befriend the teachers and and get extra help if I needed it or whatever else. So I think um, I wasn't the life of the party. I wasn't the one cracking jokes. I, I figured out maybe how to, to be a chameleon and be likable um, and figure out what people were motivated by and, and how to align with that. Um, so, you know, I, I think one of the guys thought I was going to be a politician when I was in school. Cause I figured out how to, you know, he's like, you're, you get cut from the team and now you're being like, you're being rallied as the hero. He's like, and this was one of my friends who's on the basketball team's dad. And he's like, you just find a way to, to turn something into a win, even when it's a bad situation. So I think, um, but a lot of that comes from, you know, challenges, right? It, it, you can't solve big problems or overcome things or develop grit when things are easy. And not that I was like, you know, compared to some people's lives, like mine was really easy, but I would say at least compared to the circles I was walking in, in the farm community, I wasn't hanging out at the swimming pool. I was bailing hay in the summers. And I think that served me well, uh, that pain that sucked at the time also motivated me to go try new things and do things differently. I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of responsibility compared to your peers. Yeah. I mean, when you're one of six kids and you're the, one of the older ones, you know, my mom was one of 13 kids. My mom, my wife's mom is also one of 13 kids. So big families, like, yeah. It, and I think when you're on a farm, when you have big families, like there, there is an element of like, you got to step up 
and help because it just added necessity. So yeah, responsibility, I would say is definitely something that, um, you know, big families in general, I think, um, it's just part of the way of life. Yeah. Particularly you combine big families with, with the farm responsibilities and animals and just the welfare of, of your community that you're building for. And then you applied that same, I feel like there's a tenacity and grit <laughs> to this around, like you said you, you got straight A's cause you understood the angles, but also I heard you say, and you knew how to ask for help. Um, that's the skill. Like, where do you think that comes from? Because a lot of people don't want to talk about what help they need. They just, they'd rather skate by with whatever they can get. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I can't necessarily say, I don't know where that came from, uh, other than, um, I didn't want to stay where I was at and, mm-hmm. um, you're motivated. Yeah. You're motivated and you have limited options, right? Like I, my, my, we weren't members of country clubs. Like I, I knew that I wasn't going to just like inherit something or, you know, like, um, and I think, um, yeah, I, I, I would just say, um, and, and, and as I'm thinking through this, like my parents got divorced early on. And so like, I didn't have like, uh, my dad in my life. And I think that I sought out that fatherly figure in other successful guys that were happened to be in my circle. And I, I looked at them and said, I want to, you know, I remember thinking this with even a cutco, like my early mentor was my girlfriend's dad. I'm like, I want to be him when I'm 60, you know? And uh, so I think I just realized like, there's a lot of wisdom around, like um, I, I, I need access to that. So I'm going to go find, and I just, I got comfortable with being around adults that were way, even to this day, like I tend to put myself in rooms full of people that are way more successful than I am and way like, and so I've just always, I don't know why, but way God's wired me, like I felt comfortable with adults, even when I was like 12 years old, mm-hmm. um, to have those kind of conversations. Cause I wanted to, to get into a better situation, I guess. Yeah. I mean, your, your willingness to grow and learn beyond your current conditions or circumstances. Um, and, but, but it's like, not just wishful thinking, like you were putting effort and energy into changing your life. And when the Cutco piece comes along, uh, you don't just do that by half measure, right? You, you really put effort in, it wasn't a hourly wage job. It was a, you know, learn what you can and grow and, you know, your money will be commensurate with effort. Um, yeah, it's commission. I mean, they yeah. pay you an hour, they pay you like $15 per appointment, whether you sell or not, but if you want to make great money, you got to go mission, build relationships and sell and connect with people. And, and it was great product and great training. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I did 40 appointments in my first 10 days. I was driving two hours for meetings and I, I, you know, I sold on 31 of those 40. Um, and so I was like, I basically was like, I'll give this like six weeks. I'll give it everything I have. And I'm like, if it lasts the summer, it'd be a, it'd be a miracle. But my part of the reason that that stock was my, one of my mentors was my girlfriend's dad, Paul, who was this rainmaking attorney, referrals, deal flow, network. And he was also the kindest, most generous person I ever met. He was giving away, like he'd find deals on noodles, buy like semi-load, $40,000 in noodles. And I'm like, Paul, why would you do that? He's like, because I love to love on people. It wasn't tactical for him, but because of that, he was a referral machine. So I pitched him the knives, my fourth appointment, which if you've ever pitched your girlfriend's dad knives, it's weird really weird conversation. He didn't make me feel weird. He buys a set for his three unmarried daughters and himself. And then comes back to me. He's like, I want to order. I'd love to help you do more, but I don't know what else I can buy. So I pitched him the idea of giving away pocket, like hundred to dollars pocket knives for all his clients that are dudes that owns, they're into hunting, fishing, you know, it's the Midwest. And he changed my life forever. He's like, John, I don't want to order pocket knives. I got to order the pairing knives. I'm like, you want to give $200 pairing knives to a bunch of dudes that are CEOs? Why? Their lives. Is that because they're all married? And if you take care of the family, everything else takes care of itself. Yeah. So his belief in me, um, like was super, super powerful. Then he'd give me the knives and say, go talk to this business owner and tell them whether they buy or not. Um, Paul wants you to have a piece of this. He believes he loves the product. So he transferred his social capital, which was a big deal. And, and that just, it got me starting to think like, what else could I do? So as a college kid, I figured out if I joined this, this club in town, it transfer over to one of the, they, they basically had sister privileges. So I ended up joining a country club at like 21 
through the back door. And the reason I did is I got the, I got the directory and Cutco taught you not to, to cold call. So I didn't cold call anybody. But when I'd go see somebody that was a member of the country club and I'd ask for referrals, I'd just slide the membership across and be like, do you know any of these people? You know, just check them off. Why did some people refer a hundred people to me? So it's like all of these things just, you know, like I was a sponge, I was open to things and I was willing to put myself out there of like, you know, a kid 21 joining a country club, like as this, you know, farm kid, like I, but I wasn't afraid to look silly because I think most people are like, how are you a member of the club at 21? It made them like, it inspired them and they were interested. So anyway, the, there's been, I think over the last 22 years, a lot of those moments where I just leaned in and walked through the doors that were there. And sometimes I would, it would work. Sometimes it didn't work. Um, but, you know, out of 2 million sales reps that Cutco's worked with in 80 years, we're, you know, to this day, we still move millions of dollars in knives on the gifting agency side. And it all, but a lot of it stems back to lessons I learned 22 years ago from Paul and some of those early mentors. Yeah. And it sounds like you willing to, to put your all in and put yourself into uncomfortable situations. I mean, to be that farm kid at 20, 21 years old and talking to successful business people and then joining the club. I mean, just being a fish out of water culturally, that's not a move that everyone takes, even if they think it would work, even if they think this could be successful you had some gumption. <laughs> I mean, you, you had our belief or you had a like, who knows, but like, what's the worst thing? I mean, how do you approach those moments? Is there something you tell yourself to get yourself to walk through the door when you know that it's, or you don't even know what's going to be on your side because you just can't even visualize the world you're about to walk into. Like, how do you get yourself into that headspace? Well, I think that if you surround yourself with people that are doing big things, like I joined, you know, the, the uh the chamber not the chamber the i joined rotary at 21 because one of my clients was a big rotarian and owned the largest jewelry shop in the area and like rolex and whatever else i think i got good at putting myself around people that were doing way bigger crazier things and so my thing that i was doing like joining the rotary or joining the country club felt small Mm. um it felt like well if those guys can do that and you know within cutco cutco's you know, the founder of Uber, Travis Kalanick, sold knives. A bunch of my friends, like Hal Elrod, started writing, you know, Miracle Morning. And John Vroman started front row. Like, all the people I was surrounding myself with were doing things that were significant. And, and I also saw, like, Hal's book didn't do well the first couple of years because it was self-published. And then it became like this rocket ship. Um, so I think when you surround yourself with people that are doing interesting things and not afraid to fail... I think it inspires you to say, well, what can I try? Or like, if that person can do it, I know that they're not any cooler or better than I am because I grew up with them in Cutco or whatever. So I think part of it is the pool that you put yourself in. Like if you're around a bunch of people that are eating keto and, and working out all the time, like that rubs off on you, right? Because that's, that's who you're spending your time with. So I think there's an element of that. And I think there's an element of when I started to look back at my life, the things that were most uh, important to me were the most painful often. Like getting up from the basketball team taught me some grit and tenacity or, you know, like break, having a girlfriend that you're going to propose to like break off when you have the diamond ring. Like the, all of those mo- doing Cutco came out of a result of like, I was working for a cable company and they wanted to transfer me. And I was like, going to be without work. Like, so I think I've, I've been able to look backwards and say, you know, good things came out of pain. Good things came out of challenges. Um, I don't know how this is going to play out, but, um, and I, I'd say the last thing is you talk to people in their eighties or nineties, historically people regret the things that they didn't do, not the things that they did. And I think that I've reminded myself, like, what am I going to regret? I'm like, put it on the line, you know, like do the crazy gift for 50 grand. If it doesn't work out, like I'll have a hell of a story to tell, probably learn something. Um, but what if it does work out? You know, like what if it does play out? And I think there's been a bunch of those, like the book, like I didn't know if anybody beyond my grandma would buy giftology and we've sold over a hundred thousand copies of a book. It's getting translated into Mandarin, like crazy stuff for a self-published book that most people are like, really like gifting. 
And, you know, they didn't, they didn't get it. Um, they didn't get that it's a relationship conversation, not a gifting conversation. So I don't know, that's a longer answer than probably we were looking for, but that's, I, at least that's how I process putting myself in those awkward scenarios and, and now probably seek it out more so than I ever have. Yeah. There's, there's, now that you know what's possible or it could be, there's some adrenaline attached to, to trying. Why not? You know, there's this thing you said earlier about like, uh, like, you know, the hard things that have happened in my life are the things I've learned the most from. And I'm, um, just went through a program called quantum surfing that my friend Monica runs. And, um, she really talks a lot about sort of how we react to these, these moments in life and how, if we could just sort of respond by going, huh, wonder how this is going to work out for me. Let's see. Let's go. Let's do it. Like what, whenever it is, like the door closes and you're like, hmm, guess that wasn't the door I was supposed to go through. All right. Well, what else should I be doing right now? Let's, let's go do that. You know, like instead of the setback, like throwing you really on the floor and you're just like prone and you can't get up and you're like in bed for months because the thing you asked to do, like someone said no to you. And I obviously like sales, you know, particularly the kind of sales you were setting us up to, to do you are selling people something they don't think they need. They weren't thinking oh, about sure. buying. <laughs> like it's, it's a, it's a spur of the moment decision. If you can nail it, it there, there are yes. So there's a, there's a thick skin that you had developed early on. And I think this relationship you had um, where he was like really opening doors for you and helping you think, rethink the referrals and the social capital and all that. But you also, you were willing to go and do something where someone could just simply say, that's cool, but no thanks, you know, and not take it as like a personal slight. So how do you, how did that develop over time? Did that get easier? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, I don't, I mean, I'm a yes person. I love telling, I love, I'm a, I would say I'm naturally words of affirmation is my love language. It's not gifts. Ironically enough, I'm naturally an introvert, not an extrovert. Um, I don't like hearing no, um, so I was willing to hear it on phone calls, whatever else. I think the cool thing about Cutco is it was a referral business. So you're not cold calling anybody. That's what people think. It's like knocking on doors. Um, but it played to my strength of being able to build one-on-one -on -one relationships with somebody and build the likability and trust. So I would go over and cook somebody dinner. I'd bring coloring books for their kids, treats for their pets. I would make it this whole experience. And part of that was I wanted to put the odds in my favor. I didn't realize this time, but the odds in my favor to not hear no. And so even if somebody didn't buy, they were happy I was there. And, you know, that goes to my people-pleasing nature. And even if they didn't buy, they'd want to refer me to people um, because of the experience. It was fun. Cooking them dinner, we're, at, like, we're, cutting, we're using all the knives. And you know, you're right. Nobody needs a $2,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 knife set. Um, but I got good at positioning and saying, like, you know, you're going to have this every day for the next 50 years. And, like, you get good at handling objections before they come up, you create an experience that they enjoy and we actually, and you get really good at qualifying your leads and you find people that are business owners that have disposable income that like high quality things. They have families, which means they're cooking with their kids or their friends. So after about a year, I was closing nine out of 10 appointments for an average of a thousand dollars. And, and so I didn't close everyone, you know, there's one out of 10. Um, but the amount of referrals and leads, because they taught you, like, if you had to create this amazing experience, every person that I met with, I averaged about 12 referrals. Um, and it wasn't necessarily people that are all going to buy, but I qualified those 12 down to the two that were business owners. Because at the end of the day, I didn't want to sell them knives. I wanted them to buy knives like me and then hire my gifting agency to love on their 500 employees with knife sets or whatever, or their thousand clients. And so for me, I, I, what I think not like I, I developed thick skin. Yes. But even to this day, I don't necessarily love hearing no, but it just made me work really hard to qualify and do the hard work on the front end. So I didn't hear no very often. And if I did, it wasn't like a bad thing. Maybe they're, maybe they weren't a fit for a client or maybe they had come on a hard times financially, or maybe they didn't cook at all. And I thought that they did. So whatever it was, but, um, but I, I worked around the things I didn't like to position myself into uh, a place to be able to succeed, even in spite of not necessarily loving hearing no. It sounds like the pre-qualification was key. So really understanding who your target uh, audience was for this message that you had 
and that the message wasn't just about the quality of the knife, but about the experience of the knife and the experience even of having you over so that they were happy to refer you. The fact that you had 12 possible leads that you could qualify down to two, those are pretty good odds <laughs> to come out of one call. Um, so like the, the follow on business, at what point did you go from being, you know, you're, you're a, a sales guy to a gifting agency where you thought, okay, once I'm in with this business owner, now they have, you know, all these employees or vendors or like community that they're going to want to to sell things to or, or buy things for, like, when did the lipo go on and how, how did you get that idea to go from just being like the number one sales rep to building a whole, I mean, machine around this. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, once again, seeing the angles when my, when Paul bought for his hundred relationships and, and it really wasn't about the stupid knives. It was about, he, I mean, he wanted, and like all business owners don't care about the gifts or marketing or whatever. They care about outcomes, right. you know, retention, loyalty, deal flow, access referrals. Those are the things we're all driving towards. And so I, I started to look at how much money people were spending on sponsorships and marketing and dinners and golf and $10,000 Super Bowl tickets and all the stuff that all these small to large companies would spend money on in this marketing category. And then gifting was like the redheaded stepchild. It was like swag. It was trinkets. It was all this stuff. And so when I showed them how they could scale their thoughtfulness and do these cool artifacts to, you know, to their employees, that wasn't a ham or an Amazon gift card or some sweatshirt with a logo on it. And I, and I started to realize like, this could actually drive towards revenue. Like I started to help companies get 10 times more referrals. I realized like, if I call up somebody and say, Hey, business owner, I got this great idea. I want to sell you, you know, half a million dollars in knives. I'm going to get hung up on. But if I get referred by somebody who's a business owner and talk to them and that person reaches out and says, Hey, this guy has some really cool ideas. You're all about relationships and generosity. He's got really cool ways to drive referrals and outcomes. Well, they'll take the meeting on 10x in referrals, and they don't care if you're selling gerbils or knives or whatever. Like if it actually drives towards a business objective. So I, I very quickly within the first six months, I, I didn't put Cutco or any of that on my business cards. I it was a ruling promotion group, and then ruling group, and then eventually giftology, um, because I, I I I wanted to be a peer. I wanted to come in as a consultant. And, and help them drive towards these outcomes with their employees or clients or vendors. Um, and if knives were the delivery vehicle for that, they would be all about it, but it had to be positioned and framed the right way. Um, and so I, you know, I, I thought after I landed Paul, everybody, all these business owners can just magically buy all these knives. And I learned after six months, nobody was buying them for their business. I was like, oh, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. And that's when I started to realize like, what do I need to do to model this? Why? After I'd sell a business owner a set of knives for himself and he likes me, I would follow up in three months with a cool gift with his logo on it, not mine, and his, him and his wife's name, or if it was a business owner, there's a woman, her and her husband's name. And they would get it and they'd be like, you're 21 years old and you just bought me a nicer gift than my biggest partners and vendors and suppliers buy me. And it's got my logo on it, not yours. And it's got my wife's name on it, or my husband's name or my family name. And so we got really good at like building the relationship and then slow playing it and then dropping the heart bomb on them three, six, 12 months later. And now all of a sudden these business owners are like, we love these knives. We use them every day. Oh my gosh, this could be a really cool business solution for us. Instead of buying, you know, a million dollars in promo products or half a million dollars in hams or gift cards or bonuses or whatever the things are. Um, but it took getting punched in the face that first six months of being like, I sold you knives. Do you want to buy some more knives for your employees? And they're like, no, it's cool for my kitchen. It's cool for my home, but knives as gifts and, and, you know, as a lumber company, insurance company, like I didn't realize that I had to connect the dots for them and, and slow play it. So that's, that was the process of, you know, going from being a knife salesman to, to being kind of like a, you know, relationship agency, essentially. Sounds actually quick. I mean, it, it sounds hard in those six months. Uh, getting punched in the face, but at the same time, your quick study, you realized that what you were trying to do wasn't succeeding and you came up with other pathways forward um, to, to take the money you were earning, which, you know, theoretically you needed that money too. Right. And then use it to start paying gifts forward, not knowing how initially that was going to all play out. I mean, that is an investment in yourself 
um, that is that is trying something out and going a little out, out of the on the edge of, of an idea. What gave you the, I don't know, like spirit to do that uh, without assurances? Like, yeah. Well, I think I I understood that even if I did this for three years through college, and it didn't work out, like the one thing that nobody can take away is your relationships, right? If I if I'm going and selling to all these business owners and they like me and they bought five thousand dollars in knives for their home or whatever, um, I, I I have that relationship for life to go work for that lumber company or insurance company or home builder or whatever because of that trusted relationship and. I saw Paul, my you know law firm mentor, who is always doing crazy stuff for his relationships. And I saw how I got to get a snapshot on like seeing where it would like play out 10 years later, because it would show up and I'd be like, how'd that happen? He'd be like, well, I did this 20 years ago and I did this and this and this. And that person died and their kid, you know, inherited all this money and then they wanted to need to write their estate. And I'm like, so you planted the seed like 20 years ago? And he's like, yeah. And I saw him making those deposits with handwritten notes and how we would love in a relationship. So I had a good model of like, hey, if you do this, you know, like if you love on a relationship, but you believe in a God or not, like the way the world's wired, like you make deposits in relationships, it oftentimes comes back in weird ways over the course of decades, not days. So people play the long game, you know, Vaynerchuk. It's like, it's a decades game. It's not typically days, but I saw, I got to witness in person what that looked like. And so it inspired me to say, well, Paul's doing this and this is the life he has. I want to be Paul. So I'm going to start taking a percentage of, I mean, I'm just taking a percentage of my commissions and kind of, you know, and treating it as if it's a business expense, reinvesting back into the relationship. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? They dropped $3,000 on knives. You know, if I take and invest 10% of that sale, 300 bucks, maybe it turns into a $30,000 deal, or maybe it just, maybe they just become a client that buys every year for their weddings and personal. Um, but at the very least, I have that person that's a raving fan, advocate sales rep for the John Rulin brand. And uh, and I saw that with Paul, where people just always spoke well of him when he wasn't in the room. They, he was just lovable. And there's power in when you're in the boardroom or the golf course or wherever, and people are going out of their way to advocate for you. And so I think I saw all of that and said, I want a taste of that. I'm going to try this. And it wasn't like, after six months, I got my first or my second one beyond Paul, but then it took another six months before I get another one. So it wasn't like in six months, I had this epiphany and all of giftology. It's like, even now, like we're, you know, as we help small and large companies think through things, we're constantly learning and iterating and trying things. And, and so it's not like this perfect linear, like, oh, John had this hockey stick moment. It may have felt like that compared to other Cutco reps because they, I'm selling a thousand of something and they're selling one, but, you know, holistically as a business, like, you know, we're still a small company, even though we're playing with these big dogs. Uh, so all of that to say, like, it's powerful to be around people that are modeling what you want to do. It gives you the confidence to double down and try it, even though to your point, there's no guarantees, but there's no guarantees in anything with business, even though we think that there are like, yeah. If you're in bet on something, I, I, I see, I think that betting on people, um, cause oftentimes it's a handful of relationships that can completely change our lives for forever in any business. Two things that come up as you're talking about all that one is what an influence Paul was. And, and it was like this, um, crystal ball for you to see 20 years into the future and to understand the long game and understand like how he, he started this, you know, we made these deposits 20 years ago, planted the sea 20 years ago, like for you to witness someone who's been living their life that way for so long and to see how well it's worked for them. It's, it, you know, it's not a recipe you can follow exactly, but it does give you a lot of inspiration for, for how to live your life and to try things out on your own scale. And the piece you said about, um, and I remember, you know, I, I listened to your book and I, I've seen you say this before about it being their logo and their name, I, I have to underscore this by asking about that idea, because it is genius. I mean, when you say it, it's like, well, that makes a lot of sense. But how do you come up with that when every other swag promotional company, and I noticed that you quickly dropped promotion from your name, right? Like, because you don't want to be lumped in with all the rest. But like, 
everyone else is all about their tchotchkes and you're like, here's this, you know, $300 thing with your brand. Where's that inspiration come from? Well, I think that I learned early on, like, you know, when you meet with business owners, what do they care about? They care about their family. And if they own the company, they care about their employees. They care about that there's blood, sweat, and tears put into their brand. And there's nothing that they're going to light up. Or, you know, it's like you hear like how to friend, win friends and influence people, Dale Carnegie. What's the best sounding thing in the world to somebody? Their name, not your name. And so like, as I was, I, I had a limited budget to engage these people. I didn't have at the time $3,000 a person or $30,000 a person to engage them at the level maybe I wanted to or thought I could or should. So I was like, how do I make this impactful? And I, th- I think I remember like going to like somebody's wedding or thinking about like a Tiffany's vase or whatever. And it's like, even the tackiest, cheapest person on the planet would never go to their best friend's wedding on the Tiffany's vase compliments of John Ruin or compliments of Remax or compliments of Ernst and Young. Like that'd be the cheese ballest worst thing on the planet. Right. It'd be like, are you insane right now? Like, no, I don't care who you are. Um, you just wouldn't do that because it's a gift. It's for the person. It's about them. It's the couple. It's their, you know, their significant other's name, their wedding date. And I'm like, all of business, we're striving to build relationships like that go be a transcend business. They, they like real relationships. Why would we do something in business as we're looking to deepen these relationships that has, we'd never do in our personal lives that we're doing it as branding and marketing. And I think I started to have candid conversations with people that were financial advisors or insurance companies, or I'm like, when you get a, a polo shirt, you know, from Lincoln Financial and it has a logo the size of a softball. What do you do with that shirt? And they'd be like, honestly, I'm like, no, yeah, honestly. They're like, I, I throw it away. I give it to Goodwill. I wash my car with it. They're like, I'm never, I, I don't use it. Maybe I wear it once a year with a person just so they kind of feel good on the golf course. But the other 364 days, like, and I'm like, do you feel like deeply connected to that person when they give you a piece of swag? And most people would be like, no, I actually damages the relationship. I do you know, $25,000 a year in a premium with them. And they give me a box of chocolate with their logo on it. Like, and I don't even like chocolate. I don't even eat sugar or whatever it was. So I was just like, oh my gosh, like the real answer to all of these things was people being like offended or feeling guilty or re-gifting it or giving it away, but it was spending money to damage the relationship. And so I'm like, man, if I could flip this on its head and I can't afford the $5,000 knife set, but I can afford a $300 chef knife and I started to give it with their logo and I saw people's eyes light up and selfishly people could start to witness or could imagine, oh my gosh, I could give this out to my relationships. And why did they imagine it? Because they could see their own brand on it and they were, you know, at a heart level bought in to their own brand. And, and then I'd have to talk them out of like, no, no, no. Remember how you felt with your logo on it? Okay. Now we're just going to personalize it to all these people. And they're like, well, how are they going to remember and I, I didn't have an answer for a long time. And eventually I was like, if I bought you a Rolex, would I have to put giftology on it for you to remember where it came from? And they're like, heck no. I'm like, right. Cause it's a world-class gift that you use every day. You're not, you're going to tell the story a hundred times and my logo's nowhere. And they're like, yeah, you're right. And I'm like, you're not giving tchotchkes here. We're giving like thousand dollar knife sets. You don't have to put your logo on it. They're going to remember where it came from because it has the spouse's name and family name and all this stuff. So it was an evolution, but I started to realize in almost every business, the best way to um, show up was completely opposite of the industry. And so I started to just do that in all kinds of areas. Like my business cards 15 years ago were a dollar and $3 piece out of metal. Why? Because most people had one cent cards and my, you know, handwritten notes weren't on just piece of paper, although handwritten notes are rare. We got $9 sheets of, of steel and wrote handwritten notes on it. For nine bucks, people are freaking out. And I'm like, their $27 flashlight from China with a logo on it, it's going to get thrown in the trash in three months. And my nine, my, I saved myself $20 by going all in on a detail and making it personalized. So it started. To, it, I started to realize it was like Seth Godin's concept of the purple cow. Like, what are the areas where everybody goes cheap? I go expensive. Where does everybody go expensive? I cut it out and applied it to all areas, including gifting. Um, but those initial responses of people lighting up when they saw their own logo on it was like confirmation that like, no, this is, even though it goes against the $28 billion industry, this is the way to go. And, uh, and it's played out really, really well to where we're now, like those companies are giving us ownership and advisory shares in their companies because they want 
they want the thought leadership. They want the book and the hub and the content because most of those industries are order takers. They're just like, hey, you want 10,000 t-shirts with a logo on it? Sure, we can do that. And it's a race to the bottom. And our belief was, no, it's worth it to personalize. It's worth it to not put logos on it. Even though the industry thought it was silly, now it's, you know, I think it's becoming more standard practice. I mean, great experimentation and testing and reiterating feedback loops, right? Like you didn't do this, you know, at, you know, 10,000 of them, you were doing them one at a time, getting reactions and getting confirmation along the way. You know, even when I'm thinking about what gift for a wedding or for a baby shower, like for a baby shower, like I look for the thing that the, the parents are going to use every single day, like a, like some kind of like diaper caddy that sits next to the, where the kid's getting changed and keeps everything organized. And you're right, I'm not putting my name on it, <laughs> but every day for like, you know, a year, they, they are using this like that and way more memorable than like a t-shirt that everyone else or a onesie, you know, or the thing that everyone just like automatically buys. So I think taking that and scaling that is so smart. As we're shifting towards the end of this, I just, you know, the time's flying by, John, you're great to talk to. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you specifically about networking, um, not always just on the giftology side, but just thinking about your own network, you have sort of your inner circle of people um, that you know you're going to stay in touch with. Um, but then you have your sort of second and third layers or tiers out. These are the people that you maybe see once a year at a conference or you work with them in some capacity five years ago, but you haven't had a reason to since. You like each other. I should preface with that. You enjoy each other. How do you think about nurturing and sustaining those kinds of weaker connections? Any habits, philosophies, practices? Yeah, well, I think that... Um at least for me with having a book, like I'll go to a lot of those relationships and say, Hey, I don't, I don't need to buy these books, but is there five relationships that I can help you love on? Um, that, uh, that you, you know, that you want to stay in touch with that make you look good. And I'll comp, you know, we have five different versions of our book now that go from 10 bucks to three or to $3,000 for a book. So I might not comp the $3,000 version, but I might comp five of the hundred dollar version. Well, they're like, I get $500 in gifts that I don't have to pay for. And I can honor my relationships that are important to me. And we're set up to do that, handwritten notes and drop ship to them. Well, it honors them and it plants a seed for us. And so a lot of my biggest keynotes and all of that have come from just taking my network and making it really easy for them to facilitate and love on and not ask for anything in return. Um, but knowing that like it's a win for everybody. And so I do that. I mean, we have you know an email that goes out twice a, a week that we put a lot of energy and effort into. And, you know, we have a number of people that say, John, your, your email is only one I read every week because it's interesting. And so like, you know, the content play, but not just having an email go out with like, hey, 15% off of, you know, it's Valentine's Day or whatever else. It's like real business thoughtfulness and strategies and whatever else. And um, so I think that that's a, a strong play. Um, and I, I think that there's power in, you know, just showing up for people with a personalized video not for any other reason, but hey, I was thinking of you or hey, for whatever reason you're on my heart, I've prayed for you and your family this morning and not in a weird way, but like when you are able to just reach out and show up for somebody for whatever reason, I mean, Itzler talks about this, you know, send three texts every day and either, you know, congratulate, console, um, or, you know, just reconnect with people with no agenda and make it one-to-one. -one. I think, you know, if you do that three times a day for a year, that's a thousand people that you've engaged with. And obviously we're, you know, we're in the gifting and love bomb business. So we do, you know, my personal gifting budget now is, you know, a lot, it, you know, it's more than half a million dollars. So I send out a lot of heart bombs to people that are even extended relationships, mentors I haven't talked to in a few years just to say, you know what, I wouldn't be here without you. You know, you did this, this, and this for me. I don't know if you remember, then I asked him for anything. I don't need a referral. just wanted to say from my, you know, from me to you. And when you're able to do that and do that every single day, you just, you create these ripple effects, I think, within your network. And, you know, you're able to engage people from afar, even when you're not getting FaceTime with them. And it's really, really powerful to do that. And it's kind of, you know, Harvey McKay's concept of dig your well before you're thirsty. Like you're making those deposits in the relationships. And sometimes some of the bigger deals or opportunities, referrals come from that second and third tier, not always just your inner circle, it's those loose ties and there's, there's research that others have done on that, but I think we undervalue sometimes those extended relationships, like, well, they've never done anything or they're not at the same company anymore. 
haven't talked to them in a long time. I'm like, if you had dinner with them or invested time with them five, 10 years ago, like to me, like, yeah, I don't play. I used to, you know, go to Vegas and bet on blackjack. I'd much rather like bet on one person a day or one person a week and send them a few hundred dollar gift with no ask. Um, because it, it, you don't need one or two of those to come back in the next three years to pay off. So I think there's, you know, some ways to, uh, to think about it. Some that have cost, some that just take time and energy, but, um, that's at least how I think about it. You mentioned you have these different tiers of your book. Can you just give us a quick understanding? Like what's the difference between a $10 and a hundred dollar book? Yeah. So the, um, the $10 is just like, uh, you know, Kindle. Um, the normal hardcover that we saw on Amazon is 25 and it has, you know, we spend 300% more per book, even on our hardcover than most people do. It's printed, it feels a certain way. Cause my belief was there's 30,000 new titles published on Amazon every week. And the average business book sells less than 500 copies lifetime. And I'm like, I want every touch point to be at a certain level with people. And so that's that level, the hundred dollar one it comes in a leather bag and a linen box. And so when I sent that out, I originally made 50 of those opening week and I sent them out to like Tim Ferriss, no, not Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, John Maxwell, clients, friends, or people I respected from afar. And they, they were personally monogrammed to them and their spouse, handwritten note on a piece of steel. They were, the first 50 were almost $300 a piece. We now get them for, you know, less than a hundred because of the quantity we buy. But when guys like Michael Hyatt and, when I went to Gary's office, it was the only book in his office. And people were like, $300 for one book? And I'm like, you'll spend $300 on a bottle of wine at dinner that nobody remembers the next day. I'd rather spend $300 on one book that somebody might, they might read it. Like Michael Hyatt bought 30 copies for his team, invited me on his show. And I didn't ask for any of that. It was a thank you. But I think when you take what most people would spend $3 on a book and you multiply times 100 and give somebody a $300 book, it's the nicest book they've ever seen. And so now we have a, a $300 one that has a video screen built in. It's always a personal message from me or the client. So it's never like some sizzle reel or something that's generic. And then the $3,000 one comes in. It's called a, a strong box. It's made out of walnut and cast iron, has a video screen. It's like, you know, I have people that are sending them to like producers of TV shows to get on, to get their attention. Cause most people have never seen a $3,000 book or a $3,000 box. Um, and so, but they'll spend $3,000 a day on Facebook ads and not even think anything of it. I'd rather spend $3,000 in a way that melts somebody's face off. So that's the book, even the book to me, most people go cheap on it. And I'm like, how can I take it and make it the nicest, coolest, most amazing experience for a book? Because the bar is really low there. Whereas $3,000 spent at in Vegas doesn't go very far. Um, so it's all context, it's all framing, it's all finding those unique angles and, and books, I think are one of those areas where people will send out in a manila envelope with a form letter when they're launching their book and they're sending out 500 copies and nobody cares because those people get books every day from people and it just is noise. So that's, you know, I beat that drum hard, but it, that's my thought on books. That I mean, it's such a great example. I see a thumbs up already coming in. It's just such a great example of you finding where people aren't paying attention and doubling down, tripling down to do something that makes you stand out as world-class, you know, referability, your name recognition, people wanting to associate with you because of the quality of what you're doing, um, how they're then able to think, oh, I could do this too. I mean, it, it helped, it actually closes the gap between what they thought their problem was and the problem that you think that they should be solving for. It helps them realize that there's way more to this than they thought and that you are providing a high quality a solution um, to a problem they now suddenly realize they had. And, and yeah. it's like, until you know you have that problem, why are you spending thousands of dollars on gifts if, if you don't realize that that's something you need to solve for? So it's, it's genius on le several levels. Uh, how can people find you and follow your work? Because I think people should check you out and like stay tuned because I feel like the inventiveness of what you come up with is just starting. Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, our, our whole process that we take clients through when we're developing a relationship plan, you know, your audience can go download what we charge tens of thousands of dollars to do. And that the giftology system is that kind of playbook and recipe. So you don't have to go buy the book. Um, and I want people to steal it and go do it. Because if you have one or two relationships to take care of, you don't need an agency. You can go 
do exactly what we do for those people. It's like when you have dozens or hundreds or thousands of relationships that you need help or else you cut corners. So Giftology system would be a good place to start. Giftology group is where you can apply to see if you're a fit from an agency perspective or, you know, we talk about some of our speaking and training that we do, but more than anything, I just want people to go, you know, realize gratitude is not a feeling, it's an action. Go do something with this info and go start pouring into your relationships. And um, when that happens, like there's a cool ripple effect for, you know, for leaders and entrepreneurs to, you know, start taking care of their five people, their 10 people, their 20 people. So brilliant. That's the goal. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we'll put links to how to connect with you or, you know, your LinkedIn and uh, your, your websites all in the show notes at on This has been an amazing conversation, John. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 324. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thanks in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.